Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 220. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. There are 19 to 23 bishops that will begin a process this year to close anywhere from 16 to 90% of parishes in their dioceses, so you can kiss these parishes goodbye. There are 194 dioceses in America, so 23 of them makes 11% of what we have in this country, and I assure you it will only get worse next year. The guest on this week's episode is a lawyer in an archdiocese who's actively fighting these tyrannical Episcopal processes now. You really need to hear this because this tyranny will be visiting you soon. Learn things about the Catholic faith you never knew in Joe Sixpack's Secrets of the Catholic Faith. 
There are many essentials to our holy and ancient faith that few modern Catholics know. Those essentials have become, well, secrets, hence the title Secrets of the Catholic Faith. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, is always exciting, never boring, and completely politically incorrect. He never shies away from the so-called untouchable moral issues. With his use of humor and directness, readers and students can never get enough of what he teaches. According to Joe, there isn't one single teaching of the Catholic Church that can't be completely demonstrated to an inquiring mind. Everything can be demonstrated. But the Catholic laity aren't being taught these things. They're being fed pablum when they need and want meat. Secrets of the Catholic Faith is actually exciting, and it will make any Catholic's chest swell with pride. So get your copy of Secrets of the Catholic Faith by Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. Just a reminder before we get started, I really need your questions for Bishop Strickland. You can send them to me from the Contact Joe page on my website, cantankerouscatholic.com, or just send me an email at joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. I'm going to make sure that when a parish closure plan comes to your diocese, and rest assured it will come to the vast majority of them, the cantankerous Catholic and this week's guest will stand with you to help fight whichever criminal bishop is trying to destroy the Catholic Church where you live. But before we listen to our guest, I need to give you a little background. In 2004 to 2008, Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke was the archbishop in St. Louis. He made many great changes in this archdiocese, but as soon as Benedict XVI moved him to Rome, the archdiocese of St. Louis began a decline. Now, the archdiocese didn't decline too much under Archbishop Carlson, but it did decline. But then comes Archbishop Mitchell Rosansky. When I first learned that Archtyrant Rosansky was coming to the Rome of the West in 2020, I began researching him. Based on his record in Springfield, Massachusetts, I began sounding the alarm locally that we had to organize before this tyrant even got here to fight with him. I told local Catholics that Rosansky would close down anywhere from 40% to 70% of our parishes. The response I got was being treated like some tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy nut. As you'll hear in this interview, the second thing Rosansky did when he got here in 2020 was to begin a process to close the parishes. I don't think anybody thinks I'm a conspiracy nut now. I think ultimately he wants to close 90% of them. The arch-tyrant calls his initiative All Things New. Our guest is a man named Ken Battis. He's an attorney working for a reinsurance company settling sex abuse cases all over America. He knows these bishops and how criminal many of them are. So when Rosansky began his All Things New plan, Ken stood up to fight. He's most certainly a Catholic doing something. I think you'll enjoy this interview and find it most enlightening. Let's listen. Six-Pack Warriors, our guest today is Ken Battis from the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Guess that kind of makes him my homeboy. (laughs) 
Ken is a part of the church militant resistance here in St. Louis. The reason I've invited him to be on the show today is because of something going on in St. Louis under the tyranny of Archbishop Rosansky. Rosansky has this initiative called All Things New. He tries to sell this initiative to St. Louis Catholics as healthy for evangelization. Bottom line is, he's closing or consolidating about 40% of our parishes. I'm still trying to figure out how in the hell you help evangelize by closing parish churches. When I found out Rosansky was coming here as our new archbishop, I began researching him. I began sounding the alarm before he was even installed, telling fellow Catholics he'd be closing 40 to 70% of our parishes. No one would believe me then. Well, they do now. Why is this important to those of you who don't live in this diocese? As of now, there are six dioceses doing the same thing, and my sources tell me that this year there are going to be another 19 to 23 bishops to exercise this tyranny across the country. Ken Battis and his resistance group have experienced some success in pushing back against the tyrant Rosansky. So the reason Ken is here is to tell you what's taking place here in St. Louis, what he's doing to combat it, and what you should be doing now to prepare for a fight in your diocese. If you think this won't happen where you're at, think again. This will almost certainly happen in most of the dioceses across America. Ken, welcome to the Cantankerous Catholic. We're glad to have you here, and I can assure you that all six-pack warriors are all ears. Joe, thank you so much. It's a great honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. I know you pray for our archdioceses and its leaders, um, even as we have to talk about the truth of what goes on. I know you pray for them. I know we pray for them, but we simply have to defend the faith. Um, that includes it, defending our churches, defending our priests, and defending the patrimony of the church. In the case of the Archdiocese of St. Louis, the 197-year patrimony that is literally going to be swept away if we don't stand up and save it. Amen. Ken, uh, I want you to get acquainted with Six-Pack Warriors by telling them a little bit about yourself before we go on to the topics. Absolutely. Um, I am a lawyer. By trade, so maybe that means the rest of your audience will no longer listen to me, and that's fine. Uh, we joke, actually, that when we go out and meet with folks and talk to folks and we talk big meetings and small, that uh, don't listen to me. Don't take my word for anything. Take church authority for everything. Church authority is all we're here to defend. My opinion, I may give it from time to time, but in the end, I want you to rely on church authority, which I know you are a solid Catholic who helps catechize people and teach them what the true authority of the church is. So all and not only am I a lawyer by trade, but for the first six years, I was an insurance defense lawyer. And then for the last 25 plus, I've been in-house counsel at a very large insurance and reinsurance company. And during that entire 30 plus year history, one of the main things I've dealt with is sex abuse claims in the church. Uh, very sad, very tragic. Um, I've dealt with them from the defense side, so I don't represent victims. That's not a money thing at all. If anything, you would think that our interests or my interests would align more with the archdiocese. But sadly, what I've seen from coast to coast, and now it's coming full force here to the archdiocese of St. Louis, is this modernist tilt in the USCCB and among the U.S. Catholic bishops is what brought us the abuse crisis in the first place, because it's an abuse of power 
first and foremost, as bad and horrific as the sexual abuse is. So I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that, but I've seen it coast to coast. I've seen more than a dozen of these type of reorganizations from Catholic Leadership Institute, CLI or others, and they are all devastating to the faith. There's not one that they would point to as an example of this is great evangelization where they've turned trends around or where they've strengthened the faith. Yeah, boy, you said this modernist tilt in the USCCB. No, it's a criminal empire. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I think we were joking earlier that, you know, they see in the deep state and the deep church certainly seem to be following the exact same script and the exact same spirit. Sadly, it's not the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's very, very true. Ken, let me ask you, why is Archtyrant Rosansky doing this thing here? You know, this is the question that we get all the time. Yeah, probably the biggest question we get. And again, we both, the Church Militant uh, Local Resistance Group here in St. Louis, and there's a number of us involved, we founded a group called Save Our St. Louis Parishes. If you don't mind a little plug for that, www.sostlp. Dot org, Save Our oh. St. Louis Parishes. And we go out and we've told them, we will meet with anybody, anywhere, anytime, where two or more are gathered in his name. We'll pray with you and we'll talk about what's going on. And the biggest question I get is why? Why, 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 why? And to be honest, I don't know that I can answer it. I can, I can give some ideas and I've seen it in other places, but it's a great question to ask the Archbishop. So when your listeners are faced with this in their respective diocese, I hope they ask that question. I hope they ask for things to come in writing from the Archbishop. Don't just take their press releases at, at their gobbledygook words sometimes, you know, fluffy sounding words, ask them specifically, why are we doing it? And so at the beginning of this, they said it was demographics, it was a lack of money, and it was a lack of priests. As we push back, and particularly in the Archdiocese of St. Louis with its $1.2 billion balance sheet, billion with a B, they've completely abandoned that it's about money. They agree that while demographic shifts are real, they were actually trying to close parishes in parts of like St. Charles County, Missouri, which if you know it, is the biggest growing part of the state, the largest St. Louis Catholic population, the largest population of Catholics in the state of Missouri by county. So it wasn't shrinking demographics. That was just the reason they said, because they had a pre-planned agenda. Yeah, I I have a, I have a tendency to think it's uh, twofold reasoning. One is money. They want to add to that billion-dollar balance. These bishops are incredibly greedy, the faithless ones, and I've no doubt that Archtimer Rosansky is faithless. But, uh, by the way, he either listens to this show or has somebody else listen to it because I see the, uh, I see the results of it sometimes in these newsletters I get from, uh, uh, the archdiocese. The other reason I think that they're doing this is because, uh, <laughs> Sadly, they're, as you pointed out, they're guided by something other than the Holy Spirit. For the last roughly 60 years, the USCCB, and by its prior name, they've been trying to dumb down, water down, and destroy the church from within. Got news for you guys. All you bishops need to listen to this. You can't do it. (laughs) Because Jesus made a promise. Yeah, I'm sorry, Joe. Go ahead. 
you you cannot do it. And again, I quote them. You, I don't get into the sort of liturgical wars or other things only because, again, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a canon lawyer, but I quote them. Pope St. Paul VI all the time, the great saint of Vatican II, who said clearly and unequivocally, the smoke of Satan has entered the church. Um, I leave it to others to decide who those folks are, but I see bishops all the time. I know what I'm talking about, and that's why they don't want to talk with me or put things in writing, because I know the bishops who have led things astray. I know there's a reason why Theodore McCarrick, the worst serial abuser in the history of the American Catholic Church, is being housed in clergy housing in the Archdiocese of St. Louis by Archbishop Rosansky right now, as we speak, even though the Vatican has completely laicized him and said he has no relationship relationship to the clerical state, and thus he should not be in clerical housing. And I've asked him every single time, again, I pray for him. I ask him under Canon 212 and Matthew 18 to put it in writing if they think they need to fraternally correct me at any time. And I know this will shock you and your listeners, Joe, but they have yet to put a single instance in writing where they think I've stated a correct or an incorrect fact, a wrong timeline, bad theology, or anything else. <laughs> I... Yet I didn't know McCarrick was in this archdiocese. I really didn't. Yeah, well, none of, none of us knew it was done under the cover of night, right, as Rosancy came in. Again, it was his very first act as archbishop. And again, we've got the documents and the timeline to prove it. And anybody can correct me if they dare to. But the way we knew it is once he got criminally charged in Massachusetts, he had to tell the court publicly what his address was. And that's how we knew he was at the Servants of the Paraclete facility in Dittmer, Missouri. Again, clergy housing for rehabilitation of sex offenders. Um, it, and it's just sad and tragic, but it's a fact. And then what was the second thing Archbishop Rosansky did after bringing McCarrick here and housing him in hiding and keeping the victims from getting justice? It was announcing his All Things New initiative. Right. So let's get back to that. Tell us what sort of things have happened during this initiative. I've, Things that have really stood out to you. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of them. I mean, the sad part is there are no small number of dioceses that have done it. Um, at the beginning of it, what was interesting is he wrote a letter to kick it off on January 25th of 2022. So the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul at a year ago or a little more than a year ago now. And at that time, he asked all of his... uh priests to read from the pulpit, to read the actual letter from the pulpit, which is great, perfectly his right to do. They said to a person, and we've got YouTube clips and other stuff from the recordings of those masses, yeah, we need to do this for this, that, and the other. We'll close 55 to 65% of the parishes. So they had a preset plan. Yes, the names and numbers of those parishes have varied a little bit, but despite what all of them say, they had a preset plan and they've continued with that plan to this very day. Originally, they were going to close them entirely. They wanted to close about 90 parishes of our 178 parishes. We said, you can't do that under canon law. We got a canon lawyer to come in and speak to the uh, the archdiocese, have open and free forums. We got involved with various groups around the archdiocese. We prayed with folks. We helped educate them on what canon law says you can and can't do. And again, we're faithful sons and daughters of Holy Mother Church. We want to obey, but like St. Thomas More, we say all the time, I am the archbishop's humble and obedient servant, but God's first. Right. Exactly. I think, I think that's great. What sort of victories, however small, what sort of victories have you had in fighting the arch tyrant? Um, I think we've had some for sure. So originally they were absolutely going after schools um, and a consolidation of schools. And sadly, we've seen this in other archdioceses where they want to, again, 
the way the church is set up is the parish is supposed to be like your domestic church you're the head of, and then the, the canonical pastor is the head of that family, that parish family, and he gets to decide whether they have a school or don't have a school. Yes, he does some things in conjunction with the archbishop, absolutely, and is obedient to the archbishop, but if they have a school, it's up to the canonical pastor what they teach or don't teach, whether they bring in Common Core or don't bring in Common Core, and some of those other things. And I really think, although money's the issue too, really it's about power, and they don't want canonical pastors who will stand up for the faith and resist some of the crud that gets pumped into Catholic schools and they know that there's, if there's 178 canonical pastors in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, they cannot implement the synod of synodality or the German synodal way. But if he can reduce that to about 80 or 90, then maybe he thinks he can do it. And, and that's still what we're fighting today, even though we've definitely had some successes. They, they halted it as to schools. They put out a video saying, we're not going to say anything about schools until we decide on parishes because schools are a function of the parish to which we said, thank you, Father Chris Martin. Thank you, your excellency. You're right. They are a function of the parish. So now that you've said you're abandoning your original scheme of closing 90 parishes and just merging pastorates. And I know we'll talk about whatever this new squishy word pastor, it means. Um, why would you go after schools? If you're saying the parish is staying, then you don't need to decide anything about the school. Let the canonical pastor and that parish group follow the actually Catholic principle of subsidiarity and let the lowest possible level of the church decide for themselves what they need to do to catechize the faithful, to evangelize, to serve their communities. Yeah, that, go ahead and talk about this pastorate situation. I've found that both degrading and fascinating at the same time. Yeah, it, it really is. So here we are. We're a year and a half in. They, they, they kick us off church grounds. They won't let us talk about the procurator mandate form and some of the canon law processes that they now completely agree with. And we have a letter from Archbishop Rosansky accepting the procurator mandate of a particular individual parish within the archdiocese. So they completely agree with us now, even though they've reversed course on that. But then they threw at us this curveball, if you will, just a few weeks ago after their February 2nd meeting, um, on the feast of the presentation of the Lord, they had a meeting here. And again, we were all together in the Cathedral Basilica in St. Louis, praying for them and praying for our priests. And then they announced this pastorate plan. We're no longer closing parishes. We're just merging them together in these pastorates. Um, that's a word, candidly, we've never heard before. <laughs> and again, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a canon lawyer. So we continue to consult with uh, a canon lawyer and talk to folks. Um, it has been done in a few places like Baltimore where Archbishop Rosansky hails from as a priest and auxiliary bishop. Um, it's not been done to any good effect. I mean, look at Baltimore. Believe me, there is no one who would say Baltimore is the example we want to follow here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Their precipitous decline has only continued and accelerated under Lori and under when they've continued mergers and consolidation like this, basically conceding that, oh, well, we'll never have enough priests because the Holy Spirit's no longer calling priests. So we should just capitulate and pretend we're Sears and Roebuck as opposed to the, you know, holy bride of Christ. <laughs> yeah. Six-pack warriors don't understand what the pastorate thing is. Will you explain it? 
Yeah, I, I, I wish I could tell you exactly, but what they've said was they were originally going to merge or close parishes. Now right. what they're saying is, oh, we won't, we'll leave parishes open. So let's say you have parish St. A, St. B, and St. C, just for an example. Um, we'll leave all of them open, but all of them right now have their own priest, their own canonical pastor. We're going to take those three priests away. <clears throat> we're going to have a single canonical pastor for all three. So we'll leave them open, but now they're in a pastor it. So they're still an individual parish because they know under canon law, they don't have sufficient canonical grounds to close them. But now you're going to have a, a, basically a fight between those three parishes on, because they're talking already about, we, we can't close the parishes, but we're going to merge staff and schools and other things. And the question is why and under what authority. But so now you're going to put these priests in the middle of all these fights over who, which choir are we going to use? Maybe which school, which parish finance board is going to be the parish finance board for all three and all sorts of things that are candidly subjective. And again, we cite their own language back to them. They change their website often, but we can't take screen grabs and other stuff. And one of the things they say is we're going to do these pastorates on a case by case basis, which is code for subjective, not objective truth as we know it here in the church. And it might mean three or four of these four or five parish pastorates get merged together entirely. There's one priest that's already written in his bulletin. This is only, you know, not even a month old or so has already written in his bulletin, basically that, well, we know we're going to have to merge these things in the end. So that if they don't, if the one of my, the pastorates in my pastorate doesn't get enough human or financial resources, I'll just sort of starve it and then close it. I mean, (laughs) they're not hiding at all what their ultimate plan is, which is it's not changed. We just can't do what we want to do. So we're going to do something different to get us there in two or three steps. Right. And my understanding of the pastorate situation where priests are concerned, they're all going to be housed in centralized locations rather than at the parishes. They're going to live basically in community the way a religious order does. And, you know, If they wanted to be religious priests, I kind of think God would have called them that direction, or at least for the diocesan priests. And what are you going to do with the, uh, with the religious order priests who, uh, you know, when they're not living in a parish, they're supposed to be living in their house, in their order's house. So this is going to be the biggest fight for priests because it's demoralizing and it's kind of like going to make everybody come out of a single mold or something. Now, priests in this archdiocese are scared to death of Rosansky. They are terrified of him. And I'm not hearing priests stand up and voice the truth. I'm not hearing them stand up and voice their opinions or their opposition because they're afraid of Rosansky, especially the priests in this archdiocese, I know to be rock solid and courageous. So do you think that everybody having to live in community like that, do you think they're going to get sick of it and stand up and fight? I hope so. And 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 honestly, it's a great question. And I what I hope they realize is, that the removal of their canonical pastorship. So come Pentecost 2023, when this new plan is rolled out and we're told it, even though there'll be a 
12 or 24 month rollout period, 90 priests who are currently canonical pastors, who so who shepherd a flock as the canonical pastor, and that spiritual authority means something in Holy Mother Church, are going to no longer be canonical pastors. They're going to immediately be downgraded to senior associate without any canonical authority to set mass schedules, to set adoration schedules and confession and other stuff. So I hope they realize how devastating that is because we've seen it in other places and we continue to tell them. And I, I can absolutely tell your audience that there's a lot more of them speaking up. And I guarantee it's true in every diocese around the country because I see it all the time where sadly the leadership has devastated some of these dioceses, but more and more priests are standing up. They're finding their voice. They're following that great exhortation of St. Paul to preach the good news in season and out of season, no matter what, no matter what harm to their priests or anything. Again, we pray for them. We don't want any of them to have to. That's why we think we, the laity, have to stand up, follow the venerable Fulton Sheen quote of who's going to save the church to be the lady, but God bless you and Father Altman, who I know was on your program. So as deep into this as I am, the the way he explained it on your program just recently was truly eye-opening for me. I, I hadn't thought about it that way in terms of they're a spiritual father like I'm a spiritual father. I have a, I'm a husband and a father and I have children and I have spiritual authority over my home, over the domestic church. That's the way God set it up. It's not because I say so, it's because God says so. Same with the church and those canonical pastors. And I mean, he gave such a beautiful example of being a spiritual father to his flock. I think maybe even a lot of priests don't realize just how much that's going to change when they try to do these pastorates and whatnot. And then all the fights they're going to be put in the middle of, which have nothing to do with the sacramental duties of Holy Mother Church. We want them to evangelize. We want them to have more time for the sacraments. But why would you put them in the middle of all these fights just because you can't get to the closure of the parishes in one way. So you're going to do a two or three step process by removing their canonical rights. And, and again, while we pray for them, I say it all the time because I deal with vicars all the time. When you deal with the sex abuse claims and the bankruptcies, you deal with vicars all the time. I've sat across from more vicars than I can remember from McCarrick to Mahoney to you name whatever bad bishop out there. And I say Honestly to you, Vicar Father Chris Martin, for the sake of your own soul, do not do that to 90 of your brother priests. Amen. You know, first of all, speaking of Father Altman, I'll tell you why I love to interview him. He's kind of like a TV set and you're, and you're holding the remote control. You get tired of him going on one subject. You just click a button and he goes off to another. Uh, and it's really an easy interview, but. So far as these priests are concerned, uh, and there are a number of priests who listen to this show. They deny it when asked directly. But, <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but there are a number of priests who listen to this show. And so I want to direct this next comment to you fathers, you priests. You must, absolutely must, stand up, fight. Stand up, teach the truth, the whole truth, not part of it. Teach the entire Catholic truth, or you will find yourself burning in hell. Jesus mentioned that in Revelation. He mentioned it in Matthew. He mentioned it in John. And the Apostle Paul uh, in the Pauline epistles certainly didn't make any bones about it himself. Go back to reading your Bible. Let the Holy Spirit convict you and move forward 
with a fight. And, you know, the truth is by nature offensive. Don't worry about offending people. I sure don't. <laughs> uh, the truth is the truth. Yeah, that's that's it. I, how can anybody, you know, if if they get upset because they don't like the truth, too bad. I've done my job. <laughs> so, okay, Ken, what's the very best advice you can give to six-pack warriors to prepare in their dioceses for this thing that's happening now? Uh, that's a great question. I would say truly be Catholic, right? Pray and fast and do all those things that we have to do and then talk to your priests. So that's a great example. And, and God bless you for your service. I didn't serve, but God bless you, Joe and, and others. So th- there's, it means something to serve, to pour your life out for others, especially fathers and spiritual fathers. Thanks be to God. We do have great priests, more than 200 of them, just archdiocesan alone here in the archdiocese of St. Louis who do pour their lives out for their flock. We will stand up and defend you. The world will treat you just like it treated Christ. And that's true for you and me too. And and he promised us that. But you have to stand up and defend the truth while we still can. So what I would say is talk to the people who know you already. So pray and fast already, but then start organizing, whether it's a local church militant resistance group, if you're in the Knights of Columbus, if you're in a Legion of Mary, if you're in a pro-life group, talk to Catholics you know around your diocese. I can tell you, it doesn't matter whether you want to call it a liberal parish or a conservative parish. We said from the very beginning, we will go to any of the 178 parishes. We'll go to all 11 counties, and we've been to all of them. So we've had meetings in every single county, every single planning area, which is the planning areas of how they do it, and many and many of these parishes. And it, it, again, it doesn't matter if it's conservative or liberal or anything in being city, urban, suburban, rural, they all want to defend their faith. They all want to defend their church. And again, they will try to tell you, oh, it's because you're stuck on buildings and you're you know, <laughs> stuck in the 1950s and you like your old vacuum tube TVs. And this is videos that we actually have from church leaders, including sadly archdiocesan leaders here in St. Louis that tell us that's why we're doing it as opposed to defending the faith. People know you. They know you as a faithful Catholic, whatever it is, even if it's just from Lenten fish fries or whatever. Talk to the Catholics you know and the the organizations you've been involved in in your diocese and ask the tough questions. Ask those why questions. Ask for things in writing. They can go to our website anytime. Save our St. Louis parishes. One more plug, if you don't mind. Oh, no, it'll be in the show notes. SOSTLP.org. And we will have documents on there that we've used. Again, they feel free to use whatever you want. I'm, again, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a canon lawyer. This is legal advice. Talk to Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ and help one another. We had a top 10 question list that we've asked the archdiocese. Again, it doesn't matter to us whether you're, it's the old closure plan or the new pastorate plan. The 10 questions are the same in terms of why. Why are you doing this? Why won't you pilot it? Why are you making so deep a cut so fast? when you know you don't need to, the fact that they refuse to answer those simple questions from hundreds, if not thousands of Catholics in our diocese should make it clear to everybody that they have an agenda other than what they're publicly stating. Okay, good. Listen, there are going to be 23 dioceses that are slapped across the face during this year. They don't have any idea what's coming. So, what would be the first thing you'd tell those dioceses or the people in those dioceses to do? What would be the first thing? 
Yeah, I would say maybe check out the St. Joseph Canon Law Foundation page. So Philip Gray is a canon lawyer. There are not very many canon lawyers in the United States that don't work directly for a bishop, for a diocese, or for the USCCB. So there's only a few that are even remotely available. Again, he is super busy. There's a lot of other Catholic lawyers. But start looking around about canon lawyers. Read CLI's website, the Catholic Leadership Institute. Take screenshots from their website. Find out from your archdiocese who they're going to partner with to do these closures. Because CLI has never been involved in one anywhere that anybody can tell us where it hasn't been 60% or more closure rate, even though that's way more draconian than a thetan. Look at our website. Look at the top 10 questions. There are things you could be doing right now. Talk to your pastor and say, have you heard about this? Is it coming? Would you want this? Would you want to live in Salidum? No longer have a canonical pastorship where you don't control your mass schedule, your confession schedule, adoration. Somebody else gets to come and say what can or can't be taught in a school under your parish leadership or under your archdiocesan leadership. I don't think there's a single good and holy priest, and the vast, vast majority of them are good and holy that wants it. And and just by way of example, I'll tell you, having done this for 30 years in terms of the sex abuse crisis, it's horrible and horrific. Only 5% of the priests were ever involved in that, which meant that 95% of our good and holy priests were tarred and feathered with that brush, not because of them, but because of the wicked bishops. You have to stand up and support your priests so that we will stand up against this modernist heresy that is infecting the USCCB and the Catholic Church in the United States of America. You know, I have... Catholics tell me all the time, you shouldn't, you, sh- you shouldn't take on the bishop. You shouldn't fight him. You're supposed to respect him. I respect him, even though I call him a tyrant. <laughs> I respect him. But Aquinas and Augustine and other saints throughout church history have said, when they're wrong, you've got to stand up and fight. Amen. You, you got St. Paul rebuking St. Peter. You got St. Yes. Catherine of Siena rebuking a pope. Right, exactly. So with all this in mind, and like I said, there are 23 dioceses going to initiate something like this this year. Would you be willing to give the six-pack warriors in those dioceses personal advice? Can I put your contact information in my show notes? Well, I I am getting a little buried already in terms of just the Archdiocese of St. Louis. We have about 500,000 Catholics and 178 parishes. I can barely keep up now with the day job. But I will tell you this. You can absolutely put the website um, in the show notes. We do have a contact us function at info at sostlp.org. Absolutely 100%. They can contact us. We will reach out and help. Again, I will tell you, there's a lot of great groups from the Coalition of Cancel Priests, obviously to your audience, to others that people listen to, LifeSite News and Dr. Taylor Marshall, who are waking folks up, thanks be to God, to the true faith and defending the faith. Church Militant, I think, is a great one. Church Militant, as an apostolate, is the only one I know of that has a local chapter in just about every diocese in the entire United United States of America. So if you're not already a premium member for Church Militant, become a premium member. It's only 10 bucks a month. I get nothing for it. I'm not getting anything <laughs> else other than I'm just a premium member in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Become a member, hook up with that local group in your diocese and use that group as a, as a springboard for coming together to do nothing more than defend the faith. To your point, we are obedient sons of Holy Mother Church. 
church, sons and daughters of Holy Mother Church. I don't want to ever be outside the church. I don't want to ever lead anybody outside the church. I say it in every meeting, follow the authority of the church. But that means when somebody in leadership is not following church teaching, it is absolutely your right under Canon 212 to say something, but affirmatively your duty under Canon 212 and other things to say something to help your brothers and sisters in Christ if they're being led astray. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Everything you said. Ken, it's been great to have you on the show this week. Will you perhaps come back sometime in the future? I would love to. It's, it's, it's been a, a true honor. Again, I know your audience is way larger than the Archdiocese of St. Louis, <laughs> and I'm a tiny little fish in, I guess, a tiny little pond for all of them. But uh, it's been an honor, and I would happily do it anytime. And God bless you for your service to Holy Mother Church. Thank you very much, and God bless you for yours. Ken, we'll be talking to you again soon. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. I told you since this show began four years ago that the vast majority of the bishops in the USCCB are criminals, and this criminal empire they operate is mostly controlled by the Lavender Mafia. Just as homosexuality is destroying America, the Lavender Mafia is trying to destroy the church from within. Rosansky is part of the Lavender Mafia, and you only need to look at what he's doing in St. Louis and has done in Springfield, Massachusetts, to see what an anti-Catholic tyrant he is. Now, another 23 dioceses are going to launch something similar across America this year, and you can safely bet that there will be even more in 2024. Now's the time to prepare for battle. Go to cantankerouscatholic.com and click on the Episodes page. Then click on the title of this episode. Below the podcast player, you'll find my show notes. You'll find links to three websites there. Two of those sites are for the St. Louis Archdiocese and the work of Ken Battis and his associates. The other is for the St. Joseph Cannon Law Foundation. You're going to need them. Help this apostolate while you help yourself. First, check out what I have for sale on cantankerouscatholic.com on the Joe's Stuff page. I have books, coffee mugs, and t-shirts. Your purchase helps this apostolate. On the episodes, blog, and about pages, there are Catholic Amazon items in the sidebar. I change those offerings every week now. When you click on those images, as long as you shop at Amazon after doing so, this apostolate gets a small commission on everything you buy. Please help this apostolate while you buy whatever you're going to buy anyway. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Joseph Pack, the Every Catholic Guy. Hello, Six-Pack Warriors. We have Bishop Joseph Strickland with us again from Tyler, Texas. How are you today, Bishop? Good, Joe. How are you? (laughs) You always ask. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You don't have to answer. I won't. (laughs) 
<laughs> Excellency, we have a series of questions from Brian about pornography use and self-stimulation. I'm assuming he means masturbation. So uh, he says here, I've been given different answers to the following questions, and I am asking on behalf of myself and others. The catechism has strong language, but between deacons, priests, and podcasters, I guess that means me, uh, (laughs) different yes and no answers are given. So his first question is, is pornography use a mortal sin? Yes. (laughs) Why? He's asking that too. There are multiple reasons. Um, It is, it probably is one of the most evil realities of our time. And sadly, this medium that we're using for good is, has made it just explode into the universe. But it is grave sin, mortal sin, because of the people involved. Those are children of God. If there are human beings being illustrated in whatever contortion of immoral activity, those are children of God, like we've talked about before. So that's part of the problem. Um, very often, um, nefarious ways of of exploiting beyond the, the moral questions, just exploiting individuals with financial aspects and with power as it, it is just i mean the the ugly ugly evil of pornography um is just it's devastating humanity um i don't think that's too strong a statement it is and it the thing is it's hidden so often people think that they're they're doing it privately um and it it, it reminds me of you know a lot of times you'll hear, at least in the past, I've heard people talking about victimless crimes. And I think a lot of people probably approach pornography. It's like, who am I hurting? There's no victim. It is full of victims. The yeah. people on the screen, the, the people that you're neglecting in your life because your energy is going into this ugliness. I mean, it, it prompts you to... You know, masturbation is is seriously sinful, like the uh, the catechism says. Um, and you know, I think it's especially important, like like you said, Joe. To we talked about, you should know the answer to these questions. But I'm glad they're being asked because they need to be talked about very clearly. You don't have to get into the explicit ugliness of of what is being portrayed. But we all know, you know, what's pornographic. It's it's something that you wouldn't want your grandmother to know you were looking at. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty simple gauge. And, you know, and we're all tempted and bombarded with images. I mean, you just drive down the, the highway here in a very, fairly small town in northeast Texas, and you're likely to see an image that can can sort of push you in the direction of pornography. I mean, thankfully, you know, pornographic images are not on billboards in our town. And I don't know of many places probably there are some, but um, thankfully that 
the explicit pornographic is not out there on the streets, um, maybe Times Square, but not here. Um, certainly probably in Las Vegas. I mean, you don't have to look very far, but the temptations are there for all of us. And we have to remember one of the root issues with pornography is by the definition, it's children of God who are sacred that may be of their own free will, but even if it is of their own free will, like you said, we have to admonish the sinner rather than you know, taking pleasure in the sin of another. And that's what pornography is. So, I mean, I could go on and on about how bad it is, but I, I really am glad the question got asked because too often it's it's not acknowledged sort of in polite conversation because it is so ugly. But parents need to need to know that their kids are exposed to it and they need to very clearly help them pull away from it or avoid it. And and sadly, the age at which children need to address that by the parents. I mean, let me say that very clearly for the schools, because part of the problem in public schools is they're being told, you know, there's no problem with masturbation. It's healthy. I mean, these stupid things that are being said, much less immoral. I mean, it's just not even good basic human health, what what is being touted in the schools too often. But the, it's not the place of the schools to deal with this. It's the place of parents Amen. to deal with it appropriately. And, you know, each parent has to decide uh, how how to deal with it. But sadly, the because of what children are exposed to, just on a, you know, on a regular television or just out in the world, parents have to take the responsibility. And the idea that, oh, not my kid, I hate to tell them, yes, your kid. I mean, every kid, that it's an epidemic of exposure. And some, I mean, it destroys marriages. Uh, it, it, is, it is just a, a font of evil that we need to do a much better job of addressing and making it very clear that there's there's nothing moral or acceptable about it. Amen. And I'm I'm glad you brought up the point that it's not a victimless crime. It is a victim crime. Of uh, every person in that video, regardless of whether they're being paid or uh, they're doing it willingly. They're still a victim. Once it ends up on the internet, it never goes away. Well, what do you do with the poor soul who later repents of such things? That person is victimized for the rest of his or her life. And uh, I would like to add to this, if I may. Masturbation violates natural law. Your sexual organs were given you by God for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to produce progeny. Any use of your sexual organs that is not open to generating life is a perversion of natural law. And what do we call people who are 
uh, guilty of a perversion, we call them perverts. And so anyone who does this is a pervert. I'm sorry, that's just the truth of it. Would you agree, Excellency? Yes, and just to remember that we we admonish the sinner because they are precious to God. They are children of God. And, you know, the perversions, I mean, that's what perversion is. It's, it's turning upside down what is precious. And, and sadly, in our world, I mean, it, the, the, pretty much the world is upside down. <laughs> what was good is bad. What was false is true. I mean, it's not, but that's what's being portrayed in society in more ways than we have time to deal with. Yeah, actually, I'd love to talk to you about that sometime. I noticed what you uh, put on Twitter about the Grammy Awards. Oh, atrocious. Atrocious. It was terrible. But anyway, let's go on to the next one. Is pornography and or uh, self-stimulation a venial sin? You've already answered that. Yeah. But his next question, I kind of understand this question because a lot of people are confused about this language. Does grave sin equal mortal sin? I would say yes. I think it's just differences of terminology. Well, you know, I mean, we can quibble and say, oh, it's great, but not mortal. What does mortal sin mean? Deadly. And and that's what the church says. Some sins are deadly. All sin, in at some degree, I, I guess I would use the image, Joe, of taking poison. Every sin is a little bit of poison. It's taking us away from the virtues and the goodness that God created us with. When I sin, and I do, we all do. We're foolish to think we don't sin. But we're called away from it. We're called to repent. Every sin is is like taking a little bit of poison. And I think that's, you know, I like that analogy because, you know, take arsenic. You can take, I mean, you know, there have been murder cases where people have been slowly murdered by just giving enough to just keep doing a little damage. And that's how even venial sins can build up to the point where we're vulnerable to a mortal or grave sin in that area or another. So every sin is deadly in that sense. Um, and that's why we're, we're called to repent and to seek virtue and to go to confession often because we're all sinners. We live in a world of concupiscence, of being prone to sin. The temptations are certainly out there, but with the question of grave or mortal, to me, that's just different translations of the same reality. Is this going to kill your immortal soul if you just keep going down this path? And the answer is yes. Excellent. This next question he asks, really shows a high degree of confusion. I don't know if it's confusion with his students or with himself or what it is, but it's certainly a confusion that needs to be straightened out by the good old boss right here. So uh, he asked, 
is it appropriate to consider pornography slash self-stimulation a venial sin, but recommend that you treat it as a mortal sin, sacramentally confess in number and kind every instant? Yeah. (laughs) I think... The, to me, that's try, kind of splitting hairs and, and trying to, as I've told people, and I try to remind myself, as I've, especially talking to teenagers, if you're not sure, just confess it. You know, quit trying to figure out, am I guilty? Just confess. Just offer it to the priest. Offer it, actually, to the Lord. He's the one forgiving us in the sacrament of confession. He's always ready to forgive us. But we've got to be upfront and honest with it. So that would be my answer. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about how serious it is. If you, in your heart, know that this was was wrong and sinful, just confess it. Let the Lord figure out how serious it was and forgive you. Yes, absolutely. Now, this next one also shows some confusion. Is it appropriate to confess rare instances, and I assume he means both pornography and masturbation, is it appropriate to confess rare instances privately at home as long as it's not habitual, but confess publicly in confession? I'm glad that isn't really public. uh, If it becomes habitual. Now, again, if it's sin, it needs to be confessed. Amen. I mean, even even the venial sins, like I said, it's a it's a little bit of the poison. We want to go to confession and be completely free of the poison of sin when we leave the confessional. And to do that, you need to truly open your heart to the Lord, with the priest acting as as his instrument of mercy and forgiveness, and just confess. I, I uh, that's absolutely well. I'm like let me, me add to you. that. Let me add, Joe. Sure. Absolutely, and maybe that's where not using the language, but you know, <laughs> memorizing <clears throat> and making frequent use of a good act of contrition is there's absolutely nothing wrong with making an act of contrition frequently you know, on a daily basis, more than once a day. Um, and and I encourage people to memorize one, uh, memorize an act of contrition. Because, I mean, you know, I it's, it's just a, a prayer that stays with me. And it doesn't substitute <clears throat> for going to confession, but it helps us to be more disposed to just recognizing our sin. And, and certainly... Really, I don't think that being overly scrupulous is a big problem in today's world. I mean, I think the opposite is our bigger problem, that people are ignoring sin. Certainly, psychologically and and people that get a little bit too inwardly focused, scrupulosity is, is something. It's a reality that some people get caught up in. And that is something, again, rather than trying to sort everything out yourself, just talk to the priest in confession. If you're if you're confessing, 
and we all struggle with confessing the same sins over and over again. If it's if you just feel like you're not making any progress, talk it over with the priest in confession. Um, but scrupulosity, I don't think, is is one of our major issues. It can be, and a, a priest hopefully is going to compassionately help a person recognize that you know if you're confessing you know, sexual sins when you've actually never not done something and you're basically talking about thoughts, certainly entertaining, you know, the the sexual thoughts is sinful and it it can, it it leads us down the path to, to more serious sins. So it is worth confessing, but, you know, you, you have to have a healthy balance there and to, to just say, you know, every time I breathe, I'm committing a mortal sin. That is getting a little, little out of balance, or actually a lot out of balance. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, and Brian, I want to add to this something that you may want to teach and even use yourself. Every night before I go to sleep, I make an examination of conscience for the day. I end it with reciting, praying the act of contrition. Now, what this does is keep my sins foremost on my mind, and it also prepares me for Saturday's confession. By doing that every day, you, you've got a handle on it. And confession also requires repentance and a firm purpose of amendment. So it doesn't do any good to go in and confess sins to Father if you don't have any intention of stopping them. The absolution is not being applied. So would you agree, Excellency? Absolutely. A firm purpose of amendment is is essential, and, and we don't emphasize that enough these days. Amen. Um, and a good act of contrition I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid Amen. the mere occasion of sin. I mean, that we need to really mean that. And yeah, I mean, it's it's frustrating to, to recognize we will sin again. We do sin again, but we need to keep strengthening that purpose of changing. And, you know, I I'm living proof that it works. Not perfectly. I still have work to do, but I have managed to grow away from sin in my life in significant ways. We all have to do that. A lot of your Twitter followers don't agree with you. I've <laughs> seen a lot of them that say you're a living saint, but. Uh, or they say the opposite too. So. <laughs> well, yes, they do. I, I have to argue with them all the time. This last thing, Brian just merely explains his questions. He says, I work with converts and those converting and want to be clear in my guidance without being either negligent or scrupulous. And I very much appreciate that explanation. I have worked in apostolate and done evangelization. I have, uh, uh, God has used me to make over 200 converts and reverts. And I want to tell you the reason why I think this is so good. 
you have to do two things or you have to keep two things in mind whenever you're evangelizing or whenever you're working with converts or those in the process thereof. First of all, you have to love them. You have to love them enough that you're willing to lay down your life for them. You don't tell them that. They pick up on it. They can tell where you're at. And the other thing to keep in mind is that you, if you're doing this kind of work, you are accountable to Almighty God for what you do and what you fail to do. And never forget that because teaching the catechism, making converts, if you're not doing it with those things in mind, you're probably going to end up in hell. So, uh, (laughs) because the soul of the person you're dealing with is just as precious to Christ as it is to you, as yours is to you, as is, as yours is to him. Boy, I'll get it right eventually. Uh, so, you know, would you, would you like to add anything to that, Excellency? No, I think you you said it well. Thank you, boy. I, nobody ever says that to me. I usually get the same kind of crap you do from Twitter. <laughs> okay, that's it for this week, Six Pack Warriors, Excellency. We deeply appreciate you being here. Thanks, Joe. God bless. Okay, see you next week. You might want to sit down for this one. I'm going to stop asking you for gifts to support this show and begin asking you to help me get more listeners to the Cantankerous Catholic. It won't cost you anything except a few minutes of your time. The more reviews the Cantankerous Catholic gets, the more often it's displayed by the podcast aggregators when people are looking for new podcasts. Occasionally, this might cause the Cantankerous Catholic to get attention from Podcast Magazine, the industry's trade magazine. So click on the link in my show notes that says, Rank and Review the Cantankerous Catholic so more Catholics can join us. Then write a short review doesn't cost you anything and it doesn't make me anything. It just gets more listeners for the Cantankerous Catholic and makes the USCCB live it. That's a good thing. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. A frugal farmer was on his way to market one day when he saw a piece of string lying on the road. He thought it might come in useful, so he bent down to pick it up, just as a passerby saw him put it into his pocket. Later, a man's wallet containing several hundred dollars was reported lost in the same spot, so the police asked the farmer what he knew about it. They didn't believe him when he told them that he'd only picked up a piece of string. Indeed, the entire town laughed at the farmer's explanation. 
He tried to tell everyone around town the true story of what happened, but nobody believed him. He couldn't sleep that night and was absolutely miserable over everyone thinking he was a thief. The next day, the wallet was found lying empty on the road. The farmer happily told everyone this new detail, but by now he'd been judged guilty by common consent of the townspeople. They decided this latest development was just a clever trick by the farmer so he could keep the money. His reputation ruined, the farmer returned home. He brooded over the incident until it drove him to a nervous breakdown and mental illness. He kept babbling over and over to himself, a piece of string. It was only a piece of string. He died soon after that. As we complete our examination of the Eighth Commandment, this story touches on so much of what we've already learned. It covers some of what we'll look at today. Calumny, contumely, libel, secrets, and reparation for sins against this commandment. Calumny is probably a new word for some of you. Calumny, which we commonly call slander today, is the making of remarks contrary to the truth which harm the reputation of others and give occasion of false judgment concerning them. Calumny is gravely immoral because everyone has a right to a good reputation. If calumny was a new word for some of you, I suspect contumely is a new word for most of you. I know I didn't know either word when I first started studying Catholicism. But they really are words that were at one time common in our language. Anyway, contumely is showing contempt for a person by unjustly dishonoring him. It may be committed by ignoring the person, refusing to show him the proper signs of respect, or through ridicule. Not only is this a sin against the Eighth Commandment, but it tempts the person being disrespected to anger, revenge, and other sins. Libel is any false or malicious written or printed statement or any sign, picture, or effigy tending to injure the person's reputation in any way. We commonly see this today when a political cartoonist abuses his liberty in favor of license to harm a political enemy. I'm not saying all political cartoons are libelous. I'm merely saying that they often go too far. We also see violations of the Eighth Commandment regarding secrets. We're obliged to keep secrets if we promise to do so, or if our office requires it, such as lawyers, doctors, or priests, or if the good of others demands it. Covered under this prohibition against revealing secrets extends to reading the private letters and writings of others. We may never read such letters or the private writings of others, such as diaries, without the person's permission unless the motive for reading them is to prevent grave harm to oneself, another, or society. For example, say your friend has been very depressed lately, and you're concerned about him. You can't find your friend one day, but do find a letter he's written left on his desk. Should you look at the letter? If you're concerned it could be a suicide note, then you can look at it. If, however, it becomes apparent that the letter isn't a suicide note, then you're morally obligated to stop reading it and to keep to yourself the content of that part of the letter that you've already read. This indirectly leads us to the seal of confession. The vast majority of people believe the seal of confession applies only to priests. That simply isn't the case. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the secret of the Sacrament of Reconciliation is sacred and cannot be violated under 
any pretext. Therefore, if you somehow gain knowledge of matter for someone's confession, you must never reveal that knowledge to anyone. This extends to seeing or becoming privy to someone's sin that hasn't yet been confessed, because it's a potential matter for confession, whether the person confesses it or not. The only exception to that is in the case of a felonious act. But even if you come to know of a felonious act because you may have overheard a sacramental confession, you're obligated to keep that information to yourself. It's gravely immoral to violate the seal of confession, even if you merely overheard a confession. I know I've overheard several confessions while waiting to see the priest myself because the person ahead of me speaks too loudly. What I've overheard will die with me, as it should you. Reparations for sins against the Eighth Commandment are absolutely necessary, and making reparation one time will keep you from ever committing that particular sin again. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, For every offense committed against justice and truth entails the duty of reparation, even if its author has been forgiven. When it is impossible publicly to make reparation for a wrong, it must be made secretly. If someone who has suffered harm cannot be directly compensated, he must be given moral satisfaction in the name of charity. The duty of reparation also concerns offenses against another's reputation. The reparation, moral and sometimes material, must be evaluated in terms of the extent of the damage inflicted. It obliges in conscience. Here's an example of reparation. Let's say Deacon John owns a plumbing business and you see his truck outside a known brothel at 2 o'clock in the morning. Your first obligation is to view the situation in the best possible light, that he's probably there on an emergency call to fix a busted water pipe. But rather than doing as you ought, you instead tell other people you saw his truck outside the brothel. Later, when you discover he was indeed repairing a busted pipe, you have to make reparation for telling others what you saw. How's that done? You have to go to everyone you told and correct what you told them. You must also find out who they told and go to those people as well. You must also find out who they told and go to them as well. You have to carry this reparation as far as is possible in the name of justice and charity. So you can see it's much easier to learn to tame the tongue rather than let it move freely. I think St. James gives us the best advice in his epistle. Wherefore, it is better to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. In other words, you have two ears and one mouth, so use them proportionately. You've heard my commercials about my bulletin insert program for parish priests to subscribe to so their parishioners can learn the Catholic faith. The only problem with this program is that the vast majority of priests either don't care about relieving their flock of their catechetical ignorance or they're too cowardly. Either way, these inserts do no good if they don't get into the hands of the people. Well, I've found a way to get each one into your hand. I've renamed these small articles Secrets of the Catholic Faith and you can get one into your email inbox every week from Substack. It only costs $5 a month or $50 a year. 
Just click on the link in my show notes at cantankerouscatholic.com. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. John Chrysostom. He said, How many of you say, I should like to see his face, his garments, his shoes? You do see him, you touch him, you eat him. He gives himself to you, not only that you may see him, but also to be your food and nourishment. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Last week, I told you about a convict convert I met in my work in prison apostolate. That story reminded me of another man whose life demonstrated how infinite God's graces are. Let's just call him Carl. I knew who Carl was long before I met him. Even though I wasn't a priest or a deacon, I'd earned the trust of the warden of the prison so much that from time to time I was allowed to have free run of the prison in order to share with the men. That was how I learned about Carl. Everyone in the prison knew who Carl was because he was legendary in the penal system. He was known throughout the system as a cold-blooded killer who knew how to get anything other prisoners wanted, for money, of course. Everything from drugs to free world liquor and even to women on occasion. You could tell by looking into his eyes that he'd rather kill you than talk to you. And the other men I worked with in our postulate were afraid of him. I even saw really tough guys move out of his way when he walked down the hall, calling him sir while nodding their head to respectfully acknowledge him. You see, Carl started out on death row in 1970, but his sentence was commuted to life when the Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty in 1972. Carl hated religion and anyone having anything to do with it. He considered them weak. I began praying that God would allow me an opportunity to speak to Carl. How tough was Carl? After I finally met him and earned his trust, he showed me a Silver Star citation from when he was a Marine in Vietnam. The citation didn't tell the whole story, so Carl filled in the blanks for me. It seems that Carl had been ordered to guard the base camp ammo supply one night. Before reporting to his post, he went to his tent to get a bottle of whiskey he had stashed away. While at his guard post, Carl got drunk and fell asleep. Well, it just so happened that two Viet Cong managed to creep into the camp undetected with the intention of taking the munitions from the supply Carl was supposed to be guarding. They decided to kill the drunk sleeping Marine before taking the munitions. Things get a little hazy at this point. According to the citation, when the Viet Cong attempted to kill Carl, they used a bayonet to slice about two feet across his abdomen and very deep. The citation said that while Carl held in his intestines with one hand, he killed the two enemy with the other hand. Carl was a bad hombre. The prison we were working in used to allow the prisoners to get a package every year from home for Christmas. Many men never got packages because their families couldn't afford it or they simply had no families. 
Recognizing the need, we use that as an evangelistic tool. We put out the word that we'd provide a Christmas package to any convict who would attend weekly catechism classes and mass beginning in August. No strings except those. The hope and prayer was that weekly exposure to Catholic truth and mass would reach inside the souls of these men. It worked very well. A lot of converts were made. Carl came to me and said, I hear you'll give a package to anyone attending your stuff. I ain't never had a package before, and I want one. Can I get one? I told Carl he could, as long as he attended catechism and mass until the beginning of December. He replied, Okay, but I don't want no one trying to make me no Catholic. I promised him no one would ever say a word. Carl was as good as his word. He sat quietly in the back of the room at the catechism classes. He did the same at Mass. Then, after the last required catechism class in December, Carl approached me. I thought he was wanting to verify that he was getting his promised package, but instead he said, I want to be a Catholic. Carl became a Catholic, all right, and he brought as many other convicts into the church as he could after that. Grace had transformed this man of immense evil into a devout Catholic. About a decade later, Carl died a happy death from liver cancer. I arranged to have this devout brother buried with military honors in a Catholic cemetery. Carl is the reason I'm opposed to the death penalty in most cases. Pat Buchanan and I debated this for a long time. His belief was that a man on death row had plenty of time to get his affairs right with God before being put to death. I never could convince Buchanan that it doesn't work that way, that conversion isn't possible until God offers those graces, and he does so on his own time. Carl was an example of that. Had he not been moved from death row in 1972, chances are he'd have never converted. God didn't send Carl conversion graces until 25 years later. Most people I've known and talked to believe that a hardened criminal can't change. That's really a form of blasphemy, because it implies that God can't give them the graces for change. Carl is an example of that, so keep Carl's story in mind the next time you're about to write someone off as hopeless. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.